Genesis chapter 9 and 10. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So this happens directly on the hills of telling Noah and his family to leave the ark. This blessing happens directly on the hills of all of the drowning of all things that had the breath of life in them. Happens directly on the hills of God telling Noah that he would make a covenant with him. God gives the same command to Noah that he did to Adam back in Genesis 1, verse 28, when, and there he said, or we read, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1.28. But before we move past verse 1, we need to think about what has just happened here in verse 1. God blessed man. This is the same thing that we're told happened in Genesis 1.28 when God first created man. And that verse begins just as this one does. And God blessed them. And there God was speaking to the only two humans on the whole face of the earth, the man and the woman. And here he is speaking to the only four men on the earth, Noah and his sons. And in both instances, he blesses them. And contained in that blessing is the command to be fruitful and multiply. That command speaks to the relationship within man, what man has within himself. We have been given this command to fill the earth with other created in the image humans. And then the second part of that blessing is given to us. We are to have dominion over all the earth. Having dominion is a different command than what God stipulates the second time here that he gives the command to be fruitful and multiply. Having dominion the first time is tied into the job that God gave the original man and woman in working and keeping the garden. They were to watch over it. They were to cultivate it. They were to protect it from outsiders who would try to come in and ruin it. This was the original creative purpose for humanity. And then there was a full frontal attack made upon the garden the one that the man and the woman were given dominion over, the one that they had been put in charge of, the one that they were to work and keep. Sin was attacking their very life and existence. And the man and the woman had been given the weapons to conquer this attack. They were given the tools and even the tactics to ward off that enemy and annihilate it. They lacked nothing in the defense of their homeland except the one thing that they assumed that they had, the hand of God on their lives. And sin entered them. And the destruction of all things happened by and even through them. And then over the course of time, God executed his right and privilege upon his creation that happened in the flood, a demonstration of his supreme sovereignty over all things that he created in the choosing of a man and the destruction of all that were not chosen of him. He had previously created those waters stored in the heavens and under the earth for that moment. He had chosen out of all the peoples. I mean, I want you to think about this again when we're talking about this Calvinism debate coming up. He had chosen out of all the peoples, a select people as his own, made one of them righteous in his eyes, and then saved them through his destruction of all the others that were not predetermined to be saved by him. And all of that happened just as a pointer, a warm-up for that greatest demonstration of his love and his mercy and his grace in the finished work of the final ark. And in verse 1, 
This is the second time that we are told of God blessing a man. And once again, found within, within that blessing are these commands. The first, is to, is the, command, the first command is to be fruitful and multiply. And just as the first blessing, this blessing came not only with the, the command to be fruitful and multiply, but it also that spoke between that relationship within humanity and all of the life in this command. Just think about this again. Think about Noah and his family on the ark. Before leaving the ark, they enjoyed a close personal relationship with all the animal life on the ark. None of them were afraid of them. They were able to have a relationship with all of them. But now, in this brand new world, man is not just given dominion. He is told that his relationship will now be different with the rest of the created realm. Verses 2 and 3. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave to you the green plants, I give you everything. And then verse 3, God gives man what seems to be a new license that of eating meat. So the question we have to ask and answer is, was man a vegetarian before the flood? Did man eat meat prior to the flood? Well, we don't know for sure. But we do know that man killed animals and offered them as sacrifices to God. We know that from Genesis 4, where we see Abel offering the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions thereof. And we know that God clothed Adam and Eve in the skins of animals after their, after their sin. And since there was no faux fur around at that time, he either made those skins up out of thin air or he killed animals and used them to clothe the people. But if in fact man had been a carnivore before the flood, it would make sense. And it would make sense that God would now give them verses 4 and 5 as corrections and even limitations on how they went about killing and eating. Verse 4 and 5, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. For his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So after the command to leave the ark, after the flood, and the destruction of all things that contain the breath of life in them, after the sole man who is said to be righteous in the eyes of God, made an altar and sacrificed to God, after all of this, God said, I will never curse the ground again because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Verse 21 of chapter 8. We need to hang on to that. Because we need to think, we need to remember that there are only eight people alive on that planet at this time. And one of them is said to be righteous. These were the chosen ones of God. The ones that he had specifically called by name to be on the ark and be saved from the wrath of his flood. And yet God was not fooled. He wasn't that parent who just decides to think the best of their kids, no matter what they do, who turns a blind eye on their misdeeds. He knows the depravity of man, which is why he has to give, why he has to give stipulations on the how of eating meat, of eating meat. As we we're told previous to the flood, the very thing that God saw within humanity was that the very thoughts of them were continually evil. And this was still true after the flood. And for this reason, God had to place regulations, safeguards around humans in order that civilization could flourish. To some, the practice of killing and eating animals is very offensive. To some humans, they see animals as equal to humans. And to them, the killing and eating of animals for meat is wrong. 
God says differently. And I'm really glad. Animals are created for a purpose, just as we are, which they fulfill in one way by being sustenance for humans. But God knew that the very thought of human was depraved, sinful. And for this reason, he has to actually place limits on how humans may eat animals. You have to think about this. We are so wicked, so sinful, that we have to be told, do not eat animals while they are still alive. This may be shocking to you, but this happened. And this still happens in places on the earth to this day. And not surprisingly, it happens in places where there's very little to no gospel presence. God placed limitations on the eating of animals. He said they first must be killed, the blood drained from them. Then you can eat them. Then you can use the bones and their internal, internal organs can be harvested to be used by, by man to live and to prosper. But more importantly than the regulation on the eating of meat is the importance placed on the blood of every animal. In verse 4, God says that the life of every animal is its blood. Not that life is perpetuated, kept going by, or even assisted by blood. God says that in blood is life. And more than that, God tells man that we will be made to answer for the blood, the life of these animals. And then God once again separates man from animals. Yes, animals do kill and eat other animals. And there are some animals that kill and eat humans as well. But God separates humans from animals in the reckoning that they must give. He says that of all animals and men, a reckoning must be made for the blood of a man. And then he gives the reason for this distinction. Because we alone are created in his image. And every man who kills another man must be killed by a man. And the killing here, that first killing, is clearly biblically inferred to be murder. Since the just killing of men is not only allowed, but mandated by God here. And this is the reckoning and guard that God has to place on mankind. Again, think about it. There's only eight people. In our world now, in this day, humans kill about 450,000 other humans every year. But rarely do we follow the command of God and kill those who would murder others. We think that that's just not right. But there will be a reckoning for the blood of all that are killed. And then after setting these safeguards, these guardrails for civilization, he once again gives the same command that he gave to the original man and woman. And you, and you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly upon the earth, and multiply in it. He's saying there, be like me in creating life. Be like me in honoring life. Be like me in preserving and sanctifying life. And then comes the terms of that covenant that God had promised Noah all those years ago, 100 plus years ago, verses 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and his sons and who were with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as them came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall, I, shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring 
the clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the, cloud, or when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So put yourself in the shoes of Noah and his family. Here they are standing in this pristine environment. There's no other people around, just them and whatever other animals they could still see after getting off the ark. So see, the altar is right there. Now they've been blessed by God. The command concerning the life but of all animals has been given. The command to be fruitful and multiply has been given. And then God begins to tell them of that covenant that he has made with them. And just remember, though, in general terms, covenants are usually made by two humans or more. You guys are going to make a covenant in a couple months. And within this covenant, both parties promise to keep their end of a bargain. But this doesn't apply to this covenant. Here, God is making this covenant with these people. God is telling this sin-filled man that he, that he is promising them to never destroy the world by flood ever again. He makes no demands on them. He doesn't ask them to agree to the terms of the covenant. He is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And then to further emphasize to us humans that his covenant is his, he tells us that it's not just with us humans that he makes this covenant, but with all creation, that very creation that is groaning in bondage because of our sin. He makes a covenant promise to all creation. And then he seals that covenant with a sign. And the sign that is given to all creation is a sign in the sky. And it's not a sign of peace. It's not a peace sign. It's a sign of war. The sign of a bow that is pointing upwards towards the heavens. It's a rainbow. God said in verse 16, When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the fleshes on the earth. Now, rainbows are amazing. Li having lived in Hawaii, we were amazed at rainbows all the time. They're stunning in their beauty, gorgeous in their colors, magnificent in their appearing. They are all of that, but they are also a sign a reminder to God of his goodness to his creation and not destroying it once again by flood. He has put down his bow of war and destruction at least for a time. And you have to remember the human aspect of these verses you have to think about the first time that it began to rain after the flood. Noah and his family had to have started getting pretty nervous. I mean, when the rain started, and it started to rain hard all night long, they had to be wondering why God had not told them to build an ark again. They had to be thinking, he's just now being just towards us. I mean, he had saved us before in the flood, but now in flood 2.0, he's being just and destroying us. And then they would look up, and they would see the rainbow, the rainbow, the covenant that he has made with them in all creation. Yes, there has been localized floods, and yes, it may rain for a long period of time, not here, but God would not act rightly in ending the life of man through flood. 
And then God summarizes all that has taken place up to this point in verses 18 and 19. He said, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. But before we get to the end of this chapter, that part that most people consider to be that interesting part, you know, that sin-filled part, the getting drunk and naked part, we need to consider these two verses. See, these are the sons of that man that God said was righteous. These are the three sons who helped their father build the ark, that heard him preach repentance of sin and the coming judgment of God on all humankind, who witnessed that judgment. These three sons lived through the just judgment of God and all things that had the breath of life in them. As they watched in horrified awe at the destruction of all mankind and everything that they had known and all life on earth. These are the three sons that watched their father build that altar, kill those animals to sacrifice to God who had saved them. The three sons who heard God speak the covenant promise of the rainbow, who were told to be fruitful and multiply, who were told of the reckoning of the blood of all men. And here, in this retelling of these sons, here it is Ham who is highlighted, the man who would be the father of Canaan. This doesn't compute with what we think God would do, with what family he would highlight. In our narrative, in our thinking, he should have highlighted Shem, because Shem fathered Arpachshad, who fathered Shelah, who fathered Eber, who fathered Peleg, who fathered Ruah, who fathered Sereg, then Nahor, Terah, who fathered Abram, Genesis 10, 10 through 26. We, we in our thinking, we desire and think that God will highlight the best of mankind. Trace that line from Adam straight to Jesus with the best of all of mankind. We are so sure, so aware of our ability to do good. And to be godly, we think that this is what he should do. But instead, God tells us the truth concerning us. There were four men on that boat. And one of them was pronounced to be righteous in the eyes of God. It was said of him that in all that God commanded, he obeyed. We are never told much about the three sons of Noah prior to the flood. No distinction is ever made between them. We know nothing about their character until after the flood. But it was after the flood, after the altar, after the covenant explanation and promise that we're told of the, of the actions of that man that God said was righteous in verses 20 and 21. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And in these two verses, it's these two verses that people will stop and ponder in this section of Scripture. You see, these two verses are either very hard for people to figure out, because in their theology, a righteous man does not sin. Or they ponder these verses, and then they justify their sin of drunkenness. I'm just like Noah. He got drunk, so do I. So what's the big deal? Well, drunkenness is a sin. And this sin, like all sins, doesn't just affect that person involved in it. Think about this, people. The family of Noah was affected by the sin of Noah. The reputation of Noah was affected by the sin of Noah. The reputation of Noah's wife, his sons, they were all affected by his sin. And it was his sin that was the schism that brought about the distinction between his sons. Verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. You see, here in chapter 9, there is great sin 
revealed to us. That truth that God said back in chapter 8 concerning man, that the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth, it is revealed, it is fleshed out for us in these three verses. In the outward sin of Noah, that one is easy for us to spot and condemn. He should have never gotten drunk. He should have never taken his clothes off. We good Christians, we all say that a good Christian would never allow that demon of alcohol ever to touch our lips. As we partake upon the even greater sin of Ham. The sin of Ham is a greater sin than that of Noah. And it's the sin that lives deep within each one of us. The sin that is tolerated, not even seen as being a sin, and very often justified as not a sin. And the sin that I'm talking about is slander and gossip. In the letter to the church at Rome, Paul begins laying out the gospel to them. And in verse 28 of chapter 1, he says of all humanity, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And what this verse is saying is that our outward sins are God giving us over to our inward selves. And then Paul begins listing those outpourings of that debased mind the giving over of God. He says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers. They are haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Verses 29 through 31. Alcohol never made that list. But in the midst of that list, in the synopsis of all those attributes, is this. Haters of God. And contained in that list is slander and gossip. So what is slander? What is gossip? Well, the Cambridge English Dictionary defines gossip as idle talk or rumor, especially about personal or private affairs of others. And the, uh, and the Bible has a lot to say about gossip and gossiping. The reason for this is that it's a common sin among people. The sin of gossip is one that is spoken about all through the Bible. Proverbs 20:19 Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets therefore do not associate with the simple babbler. Proverbs 16:28 A dishonest man spreads strife and whisperer separates close friends. Proverbs 6:16 6, through 19 There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, one who sows discord among brothers. And that is gossip. Psalm 101.5, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart I will not endure. Psalm 34.13, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from, e- from speaking deceit. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may be grace to those who hear. James 1 26. If anyone thinks that, is religi- that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceive- he deceives himself, this person's religion is worthless. And Ephesians 4, 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. You see, gossiping is not just talking about people. Gossip, gossiping is talking about them in order to harm them, which is exactly what Ham did when he pointed out the state that he found his father in to his brothers. Was his father drunk? Was he naked? Yes. But was it helpful in any way to go to his brothers and tell him this? No. That is sin. 
and that this sin is not talked about very much within churches is an evidence as to why the church is in the state that it's in. Because there's nothing that will divide, that will tear apart and harm a church and a body of church faster than gossip. And realize this about that person that wants to come and gossip with you. That brother or that sister that wants to gossip with you, that wants to talk to you about other people, they will be talking to other people about you. So how should you deal with someone who is talking about a brother or sister? Ask them if what they're telling you is really necessary. Ask them, would you mind if I called that person that you're talking about right now? Ask them, why are you even telling me this? And ask yourself, does what that person, what, what that person is saying to me, does that build that other person up or tear them down? And ask yourself, can you do anything about the situation that they're describing to you? And if not, then you really don't need to know about that situation. Call them out for gossiping. They probably have never had anyone love them enough to actually stand for righteousness in their lives like this. And before you go and talk about another person, ask yourself this. Is it beneficial to the body? Is what I'm about to share, will it actually build that person up or tear them down? Ask yourself this, can that person that you are talking to, can they actually help that other person that you're talking about? If they can't, keep your mouth shut. We are shown how we are to act when confronted with gossip, though. Verse 23, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they didn't see their father's nakedness. And this is not covering up of sin. This is not the condoning of his sin. That's not what's being done here. These men were not covering up the sin of their father so that no one would find out about it. Their desire was not to participate in the sin of their father. They desired not to be any part of it. And so they prohibited the further harm of the reputation of their father and the harm of anyone else who might actually wander past. Was what Noah did a sin? Is drinking alcohol a sin? Yes and no. Yes, what Noah did was sinful. And no, drinking alcohol is not necessarily a sin. And it's actually kind of sad that I actually have to bring this up and talk about this within a body. While all gossip is sinful, think about that, all gossip is sinful. The consuming of alcohol in moderation is not, at least not straight across the board. Now, if you have decided that in your life for you that you should not drink alcohol, then to drink would be a sin. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans 14, 23. But it's also a sin to call something the Bible doesn't call sin, sin. And if drinking alcohol in any amount or any makeup was a sin, then Paul would have been telling Timothy to sin when he told him, no longer drink only water, but also use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments, 1 Timothy 5.23. But you need to be aware that anything that you give yourself over to will be your master. And you can't serve two masters. And you should never drink to the point that you're inebriated, as told to us in Proverbs 23.20. Do not be among drunkards. But no matter what, what Noah did was sinful. It was wrong. And what Ham did was sinful, wrong, and evil. 
which is why we're given verses 24 through 27. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let, him, and let Canaan be his slave. This is a kind of odd way to end the chapter. But this chapter, chapter 9, has been a chapter of contrast. I mean, it began with God blessing Noah and his sons and ends with Noah blessing his son and cursing his grandson. And this chapter begins with the command to be fruitful and multiply, the gracious provision coming from God, and then the explanation of that covenant that he promised to Noah over 120 years ago in that rainbow. And it ends with verses 28 and 29. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And you're like, okay, what's the point of all this? What's the point of this chapter? It just, it just seems like it's disjointed. Well, the book of Genesis is not about men. The Bible is not about men. It's the account of the grace of God is demonstrated in the salvation of men. But the Bible is an account of the grace of God as demonstrated through men, which is why we see it focusing on specific men. The first man that it focuses in, on is the first man who was named Adam. Adam had three sons, and he died as we're told in that first genealogy. That genealogy given to us in Genesis 5 is the account for the first 1,600 years that chronicled the grace of God in the lives of these men. And this genealogy, the one in chapter 5, it follows a pattern. Each man is named, their children were given, how long they lived, and all but one instance, it all ends, every one of their lives ends with this, and they died. Noah is the last person named in that genealogy of chapter 5. And at the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10, that is the completing of the genealogy of chapter 5. The end of chapter 9 tells us of the man Noah, gives us his age, gives us the names of his sons, how long he lived, and ends with the, the same final phrase as that genealogy of all those of chapter 5. And he died. This ends the chronicle of the pre-flood man. And then chapter 10 is the genealogy of the sons of Adam. The sons of Adam that lead us to the next covenant being given. In the life of that man, Abram. In the life of Adam, the first covenant was given and made. Not with man, but it was given with all creation in the life of the serpent. Then God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and the between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15. And then in the life of Noah, the second covenant is promised and then given. This time, it's promised to all mankind, and once again, creation. Behold, I'll establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you. And the genealogy given to us in chapter 10 is going to lead us to the next covenant of God being given and revealed to man in the life of that man named Abram. But before we leave Noah, we need to understand why we're given verses 24 through 27. What exactly, why that happens there. We need to understand them and then heed the warning of them. So when Noah woke up from his drunken stupor, he, it says there that he knew, he knew what his youngest son did to him. And by the way, Canaan, Canaan was the youngest son of Ham. And because of what that one verse says, there are a lot of commentators that speculate at what that means when it says that Noah knew what his youngest son had done to him. There are those that speculate that what Ham did to his father was something other than what just these verses tell us. 
They say that this must be the case. What the thing that he did to his father was far worse than just spreading gossip and slandering about him. Otherwise, the curse that his father placed upon him and his youngest son, it seems to be out of proportion. The punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime here. But it, that's only if you don't understand the hideous nature of gossip and the, heart, and the far-reaching effects to it. And when you don't understand that in the distant future, when another covenant is being made, this time with a specific people, a nation, the nation of Israel, there's a covenant law given to them. And in those Ten Commandments, one of those commandments, the only one that comes with a promise is this. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, Exodus 20.12. And that command is highlighted through Scripture over and again. Leviticus 19.3, Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am Yahweh your God. Leviticus 29, For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall be surely put to death. Deuteronomy 5.16, honor your father and your mother as the Lord has commanded you that your days may be long and that may go well with you in the land that the Lord God is giving you. Proverbs 20.20, if one curses his father and his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. Matthew 5.15.4, God commanded, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Ephesians 6.1 and 2, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. Honor your father and your mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise. And even though this is the case, that that, that command follows throughout the whole of Scripture, that honoring your parents and not slandering people, gossiping about them, is highlighted over and again. Even though it is seen as evil in the Bible, People don't see what Ham did in uncovering his father and not honoring him. Even if his father didn't deserve to be honored at that moment. They don't see this as sin. They don't see this as being equal to the curse that is about to be proclaimed by, on him. But the question that you should be asking yourself is why did Noah not curse Ham? Why did he curse the youngest son of Ham, Canaan? But the fact that Noah does curse Canaan gives us something, tells us something about how long of a period happened between the flood and Noah getting drunk. Long enough for the youngest son of Noah to have all the children that are listed in that genealogy of chapter 10, verse 6. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. See, we wrongly think about the account of Noah. We read this in a very lineal way. We think, came out of the ark, made an altar, God blessed, Noah farmed, and then got drunk. We think that, but more than likely, verses 24 through 27 happen towards the end of the life of Noah, and by that time, it's evident, it's evident in the lives of his son and even his grandsons to Noah, not only who they were, but whose they were. And what Noah does here is not a blessing and a curse. These are merely statements they're invocations made by Noah. And what is hinted at in verse 18? Where it's in the, that middle son, Ham, who's given prominence in the telling of Canaan that was his son. And as Noah was representative of Adam, his sons are also representative of the son of Adam, sons of Adam. You see, it was the sin of Adam that cursed all mankind, but it was his son, his middle son, Cain, who excelled in sin, who rose up and murdered Adam's oldest son, the, the son who followed the Lord, who is said that God had regard for in, in Genesis 4.4. And there it was God who cursed Cain in Genesis 4.11-15. And the curse of Cain was that he was driven from the face of God. 
and with the sons of Noah. It's through his sin that his son's sin is manifested. And it was because of this son that Noah pronounced the curse on Canaan. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a slave of slaves shall he be to his brothers. Again, remember that in the giving of the covenant in verses 8 through 15, we are told that it was to Noah and his sons that God gave the covenant blessing and sign. That covenant was for all humanity, including Canaan. And it was an irrevocable covenant, meaning that it doesn't depend on what humans do. And so what Noah is saying of his three sons is not so much of a curse as a revelation of truth. Cursed be Canaan. And then Noah said that he would be the slave of slaves. But then of Shem, and only Shem, Noah says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his slave. And then finally of his youngest son, he says, May God enlarge Japheth. And let him dwell in the tent of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. Canaan was cursed because he was not chosen by God. In the genealogy that is given in chapter 10, it's the youngest son who is presented first. And this is completely backwards how genealogies work in the Bible. Birthplace always followed birthright, at least in our thinking. Here, though, the youngest son is given first. His lineage followed by the lineage of Ham, the middle son, and then the lineage of his oldest son, the chosen son, is given. Noah had three sons. All of them were on the ark. They were all chosen by God to be on the ark. They all helped in the building of the ark. They all witnessed the grace of God in the ark who all heard the voice of God in his covenant, who all saw the sign of his covenant. But it's only said of Shem that God was his God. This covenant was for all people. And God had revealed his mighty power through the flood to all three of these brothers, all three of them. He provided for all three of them. He gave them the same provision, the same protection, He even blessed all of them in having children and grandchildren. But it's only Shem who is said to have God as his God. The blessing to Japheth that he gives, that Noah gives here, is the hope that he might be able to dwell with his brother Shem. The hope that God would be with him. This was the hope that Noah had for him. But of Shem... He said, God is his God, and blessed be that God. And then the genealogy of chapter 10, like all the genealogies that are given to us in the Bible, they're very important, and they're important to us for one reason, as was highlighted by the reading of them. Every person listed in them was a person that God created and God knew, who were created in his image, for his purpose, and every one of them have their names listed, not only here in chapter 10, but in one of the books that are mentioned in that book of Revelation, either in the Lamb's book of life or the books of judgment. And this is the covenantal blessing of God toward the creation of his image bearing humans. You see, these men in chapter 10, all men, you cannot move from one book to another. And you have no choice in which book you're going to end up in either. It's all decided by God who created all men, who created all things. And so you're asking yourself, how is this a blessing, though? How can God be a loving God and have that be reality? That he creates people and you can't, they are going to be damned. And he knew that before he created that. How can that be a blessing? 
This is why understanding that God is a God who makes and keeps covenant is so important. You see, before God made the covenant with his creation to never again end the life through flood, he has made an earlier covenant with his creation. And the covenant that he made with that serpent, telling of the one who would crush his head, and that covenant, that covenant speaks, spoke of that last covenant, the one that is sealed in the Lamb's blood of life. And that covenant, that covenant points to the first covenant that happened in eternity past. Not between God and humans or God and his creation, but between God and God. That covenant were where the Father sent the Son to redeem a people that the Father had given to the Son. There should not be a Lamb's book of life. The covenant where the Son, out of love and reverence to his own holiness, obeyed the Father, and who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. That first covenant where God, the Spirit, applies the redemption and propitiation of the finished work of the Son on those that the Father has given to the Son, who enlightens their hearts, gives them understanding of the reality of the Father and Son, gives them the understanding that outside of this covenant, they are outside of God, who then instructs them through the empowerment through the empowering of them and the revelation of the word of God to them. Without this first, that first eternal pre-creation covenant, there would be no election. There would be no Lamb's book of life. No incarnation, no sun, no cross, no resurrection, no heaven. In short, there would be no hope. No salvation for sinners. No God of Shem. And it is this covenant that all covenants point to. It is this covenant that the Bible flows out of, that shines the glory of God the most in. And it is this covenant that the author of Hebrews speaks of in chapter 13, when at the end of that letter to those saints, he gives us this benediction, verse 20 and 21. There he says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Saints, it is my hope, it is my desire that as we read the Bible, that we will see the beauty of this covenant as we learn of the men that God has covenanted with, just as he did and has with us. May we wonder at this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, the one that chose Noah, the one that chose Shem, and the one that has chose us. Let's pray.